remember, but uh, I used to host this thing, like at the Tribcast's inception. And now that we hear that you're leaving, I feel like this is a big opportunity to take it back over. Are you sure you want to do that? You know, there are only like 10 listeners. And then you have to deal with you-know-who. By that, do you mean Evan? I'm not naming names. Yeah, you know what? Never mind. You need to find another host. And seriously, though, best of luck. You've done an impressive job making this a must-listen for so many Texans. So we will miss you. Bye, Reeve. This is Reeve Hamilton here with the TribCast for the third week of February. I'm joined by CEO and Editor-in-Chief Evan Smith. Hello, Reeve. Executive Editor Ross Ramsey. You're still here? Just for uh, 29 more minutes. Well, okay. We'll hold them precious. Editor Emily Ramshaw. (laughs) Goodbye, Reeve. (laughs) Well, I could step away now. The three of you could just go. Here's your hat. What's your hurry? (laughs) Just flounder here, yeah. 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 This this is my last trip cast, which I guess we'll get to at the end. No, it won't. We're just going to pretend that nothing is going to be Just blow out the candle and let's move on. When I say goodbye, that'll be – it's implied that it means more than it does usually. Uh, But – Keep thinking that. I meant from me. Oh, okay. Not to you. Okay, good. (laughs) No, that's been made very clear. (laughs) Painfully. Yeah. Uh, shall this we? Is going well. Uh, no. Oh yeah. Let's just stop while we're ahead. Uh, what should we take first? Should we do the uh, election update? Speaking of going well. Yeah. Sure. Well, you know. What do I care at this so, point? So the outcome of the special election in Senate District 26, which was one of two bits of news in the four special elections last night, two of the races went as expected, and two went the opposite of the first round. Right. Um, the Senate District 26 race was a 36-point swing. Um, Trey Martinez-Fisher was leading in the first round by 18 points, and he lost, or Jose Menendez won, right. uh, in, in the runoff I'd say uh, he so lost. So which, by 18 So which points. is it? Who did uh, TMF lose, or did Menendez win? I think Menendez won, and I think that more than Menendez winning, I think the, op- the apparatus of Menendez's campaign um, won. The, I think the, the, community... the, the, peop, the people who rallied to support Menendez or to oppose Martinez Fisher, and that's itself an interesting right. question. Was I, this more I, of a pro? I think Jose sort of a political TMF community effort. of interest formed against TMF. Formed yeah. against yes, TMF which that is, became the basis. Which for is why the, TMF Menendez. lost versus right. Jose right. Menendez winning. Yeah. And that community right. of interest was largely Republicans and well, and, you know, and, and yes. some Democrats. But you know, because uh, Menendez did win with Democrats, he's a Democrat. No, he's going to come up here and vote as a Democrat. You know, he's just going to be a little bit. That was a that was a. As I understand this, I don't have the. Fact checking available to me right here, but my understanding we have is Todd, our producer here. Yeah, Todd, we'll call Todd, right. get on get on Google. My understanding is that this was a sixty three percent Letitia Van Depute versus Dan Patrick district in the uh, lieutenant governor's race, a much larger margin than Van Depute won Bear County herself in that race. It's a strongly democratic. It's a strongly democratic. democratic. So it would so it would be right. it would be almost impossible for Menendez to have not won. This race with Democrats as well as Republicans. In other words, you couldn't have brought enough Republicans out to to to, to countermand the Martinez Fisher right. edge with Menendez Democrats. Menendez had a bunch of Democratic. votes. He had to have a bunch of Democratic votes, but but make no mistake that the route to victory for him 
ran through non-traditional voters in a race between two Democrats, people who had an interest in seeing the other guy not win. Well, on the other hand, the underlying race here was the Diego Bernal race, and he won handily in a district that was completely overlapped. And that was, a, that was a true – voted for a Democrat. That was a true Democrat versus Republican right. race. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so the, the Texans for lawsuit reform operation – which largely supports conservatives, although they play in a lot of Democratic right. races when they see somebody who is, you know, pro-tort reform it, or well, leans right. that way, or, or very close to Steve right. Austin. As in, 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 right? Initially, and that's we should come back to that in a right. second. Initially, Steve they, Austin is a Democratic mega donor, mega trial donor, lawyer. Right. trial lawyer. He's it, like the he's like the antithesis of the Texans for lawsuit reform. He's, so in, he's it, exactly what they're after. Initially, the TLR folks poo-pooed the suggestion right. that they were going to get into this race, and ultimately, it became clear that they were in this race in a big way, and. It was really a proxy fight, as you say. This was, was an Nintendo, on some levels, it was race, less right? a Menendez uh, Martinez Fisher race than it was a TLR Mostyn race. Now the Mostyn people will quickly say, oh, "Oh no, 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 no!" But the reality is, if you look at it from the outside, the optics of this race set up as essentially that as the principal tension, and the TLR folks who included. You know, associated consultants Jordan Berry and Murphy Nasica and a bunch of other people who were involved working this on their behalf really managed to do something here because as much as people thought this would be a closer race than the first round, I don't think anybody uh, saw this as a blowout race for Menendez. Last week, both sides were sort of quietly saying this might not go the way you expect. This isn't a slam dunk for TMF. And that even, was accurate. And even the and even the people who were you know campaigning really heavily and spending a lot and working hard against Martinez Fisher were saying we might be close to him on this thing. And they weren't saying you know I mean it didn't look to anybody like a twenty point race. In fact, I talked to one of the the people working for Menendez on um, election day morning who said if anybody tells you after the early vote that they know how this is going to go, they're crazy because we don't even know who's going to vote. But so so the fact that there was some talk earlier in the week that this was going to be close was the first sign that this might not follow this the script. But you acknowledge that the script was essentially this was Trey's race to lose. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Everybody thought that. And um, Harold Cook last night, I thought, made a good point that summed it's all this up. still a Democrat. Well, Democratic consultant. Democratic Harold consultant Harold Cook said, you know, you, he, he was acknowledging that TLR and the Republican Party did better in the Democratic – what was clearly a Democratic sandbox mm-hmm. than the trial lawyers and labor. Which which is really kind of an amazing thing, and I don't know if you can say that it's the state of things these days and the sort of a generic problem that the party and the party's associated interests have in doing what they do, or if it was limited to this specific race. Because as you pointed out, you know, even Greg Abbott's endorsement of is the name Nunzio Privetta, who was the right. Republican candidate in a one twenty three race. You know, it didn't matter. I mean, he, governor got into the you know got in this late, endorsed their candidate. And Bernal smoked him. It didn't make right. a difference. And in the case of the Kleinschmidt race, this is the this is a House District 17. Tim Kleinschmidt, who left a seat to go work at the Department of Agriculture, the tension point in that runoff became Brent Goleman saying, "I'm a legitimate conservative, and my response is support conservative principles above all else." Right. And John Sirier's not in the direction of working with the other side. Yeah, Sirier said, "You know, I want to be bipartisan." Goleman said that, um, you know. This is a partisan thing, and during the during the race is no time to talk about being bipartisan. It was sort of interesting. <laughs> right, and, and Syria ended up winning by a much smaller margin last night than he did, and he was leading in the first 
round. He almost and, won the first round. He came very right. close to winning the first round. And there were moments last right. night when he looked like he might lose in the second right. round, and ultimately he, he didn't. My, my point is simply that you can't say for certain, or I can't say for certain, whether the issue of the Democrats' inability to take this race and run with it, get Martinez Fisher elected, was particular to this race or if it's an, an endemic problem for Democrats generally now. You know, for the last probably four, maybe maybe four, but certainly last three cycles, it's been more important to be able to play in the primaries, whether yeah. you're, you know, Democrats or Republicans, than to play in general elections. And I think it's important that the Republicans have figured out how to win in a Democratic, what was it, what amounts to a Democratic Senate primary. And I think, you know, as you go into the next cycle and as you watch the next March in 2016, and, you know, you've got all of these districts that are, this one's built for Democrats, this one's built for Republicans, winning those kinds of primaries is going to be really important. And for Democrats to intercede in a Republican primary and get a less Republican Republican or for Republicans to intercede yeah. in a Democratic primary and get a less Democratic Democrat, I think is going to be really important. Well, in a big sign, I mean, the Republicans were effectively gleeful on social media last night. You know, their ability to play in this race, I think, was really telling for them and, and you know, setting the stage for a whole new kind of intervention. Well, plus they knocked down one of the people that they really, Right. Really I mean, and there's paid. an element of that, too, right, yeah. which is that, you know, they were anticipating seeing somebody like Trey Martinez-Fisher, who's really been, you know, a bomb thrower in the House coming right. into... And lead, quite effective. Lead, lead, and quite lead effective. with his fist. Right. Yeah. Coming into a Senate that is, you know, incredibly conservative and, you know, being a, a real thorn in their side in a chamber where they're expecting to really, you know, be able to sort of run straight over them. So well, how, do you and, think, and how do you think Menendez will be? I think he's going to be pretty good. I, you know, he was a city councilman. He was a House member. He's um, in the on the spectrum of show horses and workhorses. He's much closer he's to more, W than a, S. He's and, a workhorse. He's on the spectrum. I think he's going to – yeah, great. Um, exactly what we meant. I, I I've asked the I question about be, whether – I think he's going to probably be a pretty good senator. I think he's going to be looking over his shoulder. There's another race – Less than two years. Well, well, Rolando Gutierrez was smack talking him before they had even called the race last night to say, in, in essence, you know, don't get too comfortable in the seat, Menendez. We're going to primary you in the next one, and that's it. But two, two things about that. So the first is, I said when it became clear earlier this week that Menendez might actually win this thing, uh, and win it in large part again because of the support of Republicans and, and TLR and the resources that they put in, financial and human, in the race, my question to somebody on the Democratic side was, does Menendez risk switching parties when this is over? And they said, absolutely not. He can't win as a Republican yeah, if you put a Republican district. in no that way. seat, there is yeah. no way. So that's fine. Right. But the second thing is that Ross points out, he now has two years right. to demonstrate that he's one of them, a progressive or a Democrat in right. the literal sense, and potentially hold off a challenge in two years. Oh, yeah. I mean, he'll be an incumbent by that point. You right. know, I mean, this, it, isn't, yeah. this guy isn't going to suddenly vote for voter ID and vouchers and all of those things. I mean, Correct. he's a Democrat. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just, he's just, you know, this was, this was really, a lot of this was about, right. let's, you know, for the Republicans and the conservatives, this was, let's go kill the giant. And they did it. The gleefulness, by the way, in part about Trey losing on the part of some was, interestingly, I think, backsplash over Trey's involvement with the Wallace Hall stuff. I think that, you know, we're going to talk about the Kroll report here in a little bit. Good week for Wallace Hall on some levels, right? I mean, ish. Ish. No, but, you know, not a bad Definitely week. Definitely I mean, a good week for Wallace Hall. <laughs> I think that, the, that some of what he's been saying for the last couple of years has been validated in part by the Kroll report. I mean, I know different people see that differently. But Trey losing his Senate race is probably, you know, I assume that Wallace Hall is probably thinking, awesome. You know, Trey, yeah, was, really. Trey, Trey was the emblem of, uh, of, of much a, of the— He might have raised a glass to that. He might have. Yeah. 
No, he's had a few good weeks as far as elections have been concerned. He gave a lot of money to Paxton and Patrick, and they both won their respective statewide races. That was probably a good week, A little bit too. less of a surprise probably so, than so, the So let's go backwards for just a second and pick up an asterisk. Steve Mostyn was one of the big funders of Trey Martinez-Fisher in this race and is one of the big um, – he's the guy whose picture is on the dartboard in TLR's headquarters. I mean, he's – you know, so a lot of this was sort of this Nintendo fight between – you know, that didn't really involve TMF and Menendez as much as it did – right. Um, Mostyn and TLR. Mostyn and TLR. And um, they felled, the, you know, for the insiders, they felled the second giant there. You know, they beat, beat back Mostyn. Mostyn at one point was advertising against Menendez. Except that everybody's a giant in this case. I mean, TLR and Mostyn are both giants. Yeah, and it was just interesting. Like I mean, one giant felling another giant. Interesting on a couple of levels. And I think both of those parties, you know, those financial parties and political parties, you know, such as they are, could be back in 2016 when this race, if this race shows up again. So did did the trial lawyers not spend enough in this race? I mean, is there is there a question a question about you know spending? Did TLR I, outspend? I think it, I don't think this was I don't think this was a question of resources. I don't I think both sides well, had fact, all Trey the money was they saying, needed to, to run. Didn't didn't Trey put out a memo at one point in this race saying I've raised all this money? I mean, I don't think that it, the, I think he actually spent more. Whatever the reason right. for his losing was, it wasn't lack of access to resources. Yeah, they just you know they ran a better race. Mm-hmm. They ran a better media race. They ran a better race on the ground. Just, they turned you know, out their they turned out their vote, especially in the early vote in a weird district because this district you know uh, somebody pointed out to me Menendez hadn't had a race since 1997. Latisha wow. Van hasn't had an opponent in ages, and the voters in this district sort of you know there's a lack of exercise here. <laughs> you know they haven't showed up. Only 14,000 people voted early. You know this is Senate districts. You can if you go to like a Jane Nelson district up in North Texas. If you get a special election, you get thirty or forty thousand people in the early vote. It's you know it's it's an, an anemic voting area. The, sil- the silver lining here for Democrats may be that the Republicans have just shown them a path to defeating some of their uh, what is the opposite of a bestie worsties. Their worsties. You know there have been primaries where in the last couple of cycles where someone challenges a particularly thorny and to their mind loathsome conservative incumbent from the left. The best example of that would be there was some glee among Democrats to see this Andy Cargill uh, challenge Jonathan Stickland up in Bedford, and it didn't make. But you have to believe the Democrats exist in some number, small, but in some number in those communities. And if the Democrats are able to turn their guys out to cross over into a Republican primary and muck around the way that happened Last night, maybe the Democrats are, are being shown weirdly by the Republicans. Maybe, but how? A, a route to, yeah. to, to but how demoralizing? Right. Well, I, I'm I mean, not suggesting yeah. it's like all that, well, but I'm yeah. saying Talking I don't think there's anything wrong with taking the lessons of last night and figuring out how they. Sure, could roll I mean them Democrats off. could learn a lot of lessons from Republicans right. in the state. It and hasn't worked about so a race far. In, you're talking about a race in North well, Texas where there one. was a real difference yeah. between the candidates on issues, and this one was more of a, right. a difference of style. But of course, I don't mean specifically to isolate out that race as anything other than an example of late in which you had a, a Republican candidate who's an incumbent challenge from the left. That, that may be a bad example for a bunch of reasons. But what happened last night is not implausible. I mean, you could see that happening in other places conceivably if Democrats were able to marshal. But you'd have to assume that they were able to do it, which right. is a big assumption. Meanwhile, TMF is remaining in the House chamber. Yeah, right? he remains in the House right. chamber. We have one more special election, which will be the race to replace Jose Menendez, which, you know, to take place at a Time and and place then we'll finally be done. And, <laughs> and, and about the time, about the, time the legislative session's over, we'll have a complete. Right. And, and, House and frankly, there were probably a bunch of people who were looking at Trey's 
seat going, I want to get in that special election, who now have been disabled as candidates. Right. And so suddenly now a bunch of people in Menendez's district are probably starting to go, well, wait a minute. We didn't even know this was an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, also in the House chamber earlier this week was the State of the State Address. See what I did there? So let's move on to that. Wow. <laughs> Um, what do we think? Five emergency items got announced. Yeah, they it was were huge surprises. Yeah, yeah, there weren't any huge surprises. There were a couple of leave outs that, you know, aren't unreasonable and aren't completely surprising, but were interesting. You know, the open carry wasn't in here. Yeah, Jonathan, right. the aforementioned Jonathan Stickland was the, saying he wished open carry had the, been. The, only, but open the carry, only thing the Senate has done so far Abbott was did not say on the list. He did, in his he state didn't. of the state that he wants to pass open carry this He time. mentioned right. open he carry and said he would sign it, but interestingly, what he did not mention, didn't say boo about, was campus carry. There was no mention of campus carry in the entire state of the state. Well, I think that's sort of a foregone conclusion at this point where open yeah, but carry so is not Well, but why not say it? Has to decide whether he likes Bill McRaven or John Sharp. Right, exactly. <laughs> and to make that call, and to make that call during the middle of the state of state. But you know, things like um, early childhood education. He talked about border security. He seemed more on the Dan Patrick side of that issue than on the Joe Strauss side of that issue. Although no as, number in the five hundred, did he say five hundred yeah, additional DPS, right. DPS right, but troopers? The funding level. I was looking for mm-hmm. a funding level. I know that there's something. People well, say, well, he, there's something inside the budget. What he right. said was, let's go ahead and get the National Guard out of here, but let's don't do it until we have enough troopers. I want to hire 500 troopers. So, you know, Patrick wants to leave the National Guard down there indefinitely. Um, Abbott seems to, you know, sort of, he's got a little bit of an exit strategy. It's not as uh, firm as Joe Strauss's is. Strauss's, you know, the the House, I think, you know, was articulated probably best by uh, John Otto last week, who said, you know, we could do this, everything that the increased border presence is doing with, you know, 4,000 cameras and yeah. monitor this stuff for much cheaper and get the same job done. So, right. you know, there's still a debate ahead of this. Absolutely. What else was on that list? Um, of transport, items? Yeah, transportation. The, the, the higher ed research. It's dead. So it's early childhood education, basically. Right. So like pre-K stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, higher ed research. Mm-hmm. funding. hoops, doesn't it? Yeah. No, I bet five, I can do it. Transportation yeah. funding. That's three. Border security. Border security. Four. Uh, and then the, ethics reform. Oh, right. The Department of Energy. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. On, on the higher ed thing, what I thought was interesting on that, it was the, the the extension of what he'd said previously, which is let's get rid of the Emerging Technology Fund and let's roll those funds forward into a university research fund. But one thing I'm not certain he had said before, maybe he had, was that he wanted to take the bulk of the money he was deploying or suggesting be deployed for university research out of the CIPRIT funding. Right? Wasn't that true? Didn't that, didn't this wasn't it the university research funding is coming from the uh, emerging technology right fund. right but I thought that he had made some I thought that if you read the speech there was some discussion of this or of the separate funding being a part of this or some 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 millions was coming from separate we'll go back and review that was in the budget thing I mean yeah. there was nothing you know normally there's like one good surprise. There's one thing in a state of the state you don't expect, and it pops out, and you're like, oh, well, that's the news. Well, it looked like, you know, in some ways the news that everybody was walking away from, if you're just going from legislators' Twitter traffic, was there's a 108-year-old man in the gallery. (laughs) Yeah, right, uh, exactly. Who's the The, oldest living living... uh, World War II veteran in Texas. Um, I think he's the oldest living World War II veteran in the country, and he's in Texas. And he happens to be in Texas, right? Yeah. Something but, to I mean, aspire it, to. It, it te- I mean, that's that's pretty great and all of that, but it also tells you a little <laughs> bit about the speech. It, it tells you, right. you know, they were they came out talking about this and not that. Yeah, well, and he's been. I mean, the the emergency items are the things that he said were his priorities in his first press conference as governor. You know, I mean, 
you know, he's true. been hitting these buttons. He, pretty he said the four squarely. he said were education, border security, infrastructure investment, economic development. Where is the ethics. economic development? No, no, in the in the first press con- in that press conference pre-inaugural. He said ethics in that press conference too. I don't think he had the he the list of four did not include ethics. I'm reasonably sure. It, so I, I, my, he, economic development was the. Thing I mean, it's, the Venn diagram has a lot of overlap. Right, is what yeah. I meant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, as a, as a practical matter, the emergency list means that you can take these issues up in the first 60 days, and more than half of the first 60 days are gone. So right. <laughs> they've got three and a half yeah, weeks to do this the, What does having we're, an emergency item like this mean? Does it mean that it has to be Abbott's early childhood education plan can move forward now? Or can no, anyone means, with no, an idea subject, about early it's education? Subject, it's the subject area. Right. So anyone can throw in a bill now. Right. He'll have a – there will be a description in a proclamation from the governor's office that says these are my emergency items. And the parliamentarians and other legal minds over there will take those apart and say this but not that and decide what's germane. But it's the subject area. Let, let me come back around to what I had indicated just to, to, to close the loop on this. Governor's budget allocates $496 million for higher ed institutions for the purpose of enhancing research programs and attracting nationally recognized researchers. This is from the budget and Nobel Snore. laureates. Of this amount, $40 million is newly appropriated. $56 million comes from unobligated pre-existing emerging technology fund balances. Additionally, the governor's budget provides at least $400 million and up to $540 million of the Cancer Prevention Research mm. Institute of Texas budget to help fund research and blah blah blah. So, of the <laughs> it's not redirecting it really. Right. It's still and keeping it in separate. Right. So, so of right. the five hundred million or so, eighty right. percent of it is being essentially like He's counting money they're already spending. already spending. Right. 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 Very clever. No, well, they did the same clever. thing with transportation. Right. Uh, right. Part of the four billion for transportation is the chunk that uh, the voters already approved before he right. was even elected. Correct. Right? Or uh, before he was inaugurated. Shoot, shoot what moves, claim what falls. Yeah. Yep. Any other takeaways? I mean, this was his first state of the state address. I mean, anything to take away from style differences from his predecessor? You know, it, it it's a completely different style. It's not a it's not the sort of the evangelistic, charismatic. You know, Perry was always trying to do the persuasive thing. Abbott sort of lays out a plan and says, "Here's what we're going to do." It's much more managerial. It's a judicial personality. You know, you know the he's, part he's that I missed the guy. Perry thing. The Perry thing that became was like a ladder part of Perry's time in office thing. Perry started to give speeches where he would – he had been coached to do this, I think, where he would be giving a speech and he would say like – Throw out random names. He'd go, uh, you know, on higher ed, it's really important, Reeve. And he'd look at the audience, yeah. Reeve, that oh, we Bob do Bullock blank. Trick. Yeah, but Bullock yeah. used to You know, Bullock, and then yeah. Emily. And, and I would be like – always like, well, wait, this – Odd. Yeah, you know, uh, Abbott does strange. the like. His affect is different. Abbott does the uh, dr- you know referencing of average Texans out in the world who he's interviewed. You know, I talked to so and so, a mother who's got a kid in. Well, but know. he also called out some legislators. He said, you know, and I have a proposal in here for Donna Howard. Right. Anyone, anyone that was carrying his legislation, he definitely gave praise to. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's you know he feeds people their vegetables. It's not you know it's. It's he's got a different cadence. He's it's what totally was Perry different. feeding people? Red meat. meat. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Five hour energy. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, two out, two out of two editors agree. Red yep. meat. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's just totally it's just totally different, and you know probably not as much fun for us. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not a it's not a rhetorical thing. It's you yeah. know it's it's more of a. Um, plugging along. I think you know this is going to be a very stylistically different governorship. One of the reasons I think it is fun, honestly, is I'm interested to see the degree to which Abbott manages to hug the center stripe. 
or at least seem to. I mean, th- that's become my parlor game in listening to Abbott and in reading what he has to say. But I think there's a difference to be made between a more temperate governor and a more moderate governor. He's I don't more, know, he's more I, temperate. He's not exactly. necessarily more I moderate. I don't know that he's going to be any less conservative than Perry. And, and the standards, and the standards but, right. for what is moderate these days have absolutely baseline shifted a few clicks to the right of center. But I think, you know, I, what, my reaction, if I, I came over and said to you, this is a no sharp objects state of the state. Right. You know, no mention of social issues. There was no mention of – Open uh, carry. Of, of, mm-hmm. Well, oh, but, but open carry could have at the very end – Almost kind of like matter of fact about it. This was not Dan Patrick's inaugural, let's just say. Right. right? I but mean, Dan was, Patrick said he could have written the exact same speech. He was really he was trying to attach happy. himself right, to it. Right. But had he written the exact same speech, he would have had a few paragraphs that were more. Well, back to my spectrum show you horse, know. workhorse. Yeah. Right. Well, and I'm just really interested in looking at, you know, who is more closely aligned to Abbott or who Abbott more closely aligns with, whether it's Strauss or, or Patrick. And everybody seems to be sort of lobbying for, hey, Abbott's really my guy, not your guy. You know. well, and it might prove to be issue specific. Right. right. It seems like on higher ed, for example, he's definitely seems to be more along Strauss's lines based on his recent regental appointments to the UT board. It's like a very complicated Jane Austen novel. Yeah, isn't it? I love it. <laughs> who's, court, yeah. who's courting him? Exactly. Right. Shall we move on to the UT stuff? Uh, the Kroll report, the much anticipated Kroll report came out last week. This is the long anticipated uh, outside look at how admissions work their flagship university. Right. Um, you know, my takeaway was, you know, a little bit for everybody. You know, it's skanky, but it's not as skanky as he said. You know, right. so Wallace Hall said this is corrupt from top to bottom. There are two admission systems. One is legit. One is illegit. The Kroll report basically said, no, that's not exactly right. There's not any evidence that there's kind of a separate system or a separate track. Um, there are about 300 holds per year. A hold is when the president... Up pres- to 300. Up to, yeah, up to yeah. 300 holds per year, which is a student or an admissions packet that the president's office wants to be apprised of. You know, just tell us how that's going. They found 73 cases, I think, over a six-year period in which the president's office had intervened and put their thumb on the scale and overruled the admissions office to get somebody into school. Uh, and they said, you know, should, you know, implication was you should not be able to do that. But they also said nothing illegal had happened. Mm-hmm. So um, there was a, you know, I think one of the most serious things in the report was that they said that uh, Bill Powers, president of the University of Texas, and Nancy Brazel, his um, chief, chief of staff, staff, had answered questions in an initial inquiry with technical precision but left a misleading impression. They basically called them liars. And if you were going to fire them, that's the paragraph you would fire yeah. them on. They Go- said they lied by omission. They basically right. intentionally misled previous right. investigators, which right. I think is pretty damning. Which I mean, is the, you know, I guess this was Sharphorn's inquiry earlier uh, right. before the Kroll report. Um, that's pretty damning. And, and But Bill McRaven came out afterwards and said, I've read this. There are some things we need to change, some things we need to do. I don't see anything in here. I'm paraphrasing. I don't yeah, see anything in here that, that's a fireable offense. He says that with the assurance, you know, already knowing that Bill Powers is leaving in four months anyway. And he so, appointed a committee of former leaders of the system. Not including anybody who's been here for the last 18 months. Correct. Right. Name, names not on the list include Cigarroa and Powers. Right. But it's Larry Faulkner and Dan Burke and Peter Flan and Bill Cunningham. You couldn't have put Cigarroa right. or Powers on that thing and had any right. credibility at all. You know, so. but we, this is the kind of stuff that you know goes on at any university. But was mo- what was most illuminating about this, this report were sort of the exact examples. I mean, you got to sort of read the email exchanges right. between, you know, Powers' chief of 
staff, you know, writing a, a note and saying, you know, Senator X wants winky, this. Winky, per- winky, winky. Wink, yeah, want, <laughs> needs this person to be. I mean, the former dean of the law school. There was this pretty fascinating exchange where he was being asked by Powers' chief of staff to admit people to the law school on behalf of a senator who was requesting it. And Sager, who was then the dean, said, you know I can't do that. And she said, okay, well, that's fine, but you have to call the senator and say you're not admitting this person. You right. know? I mean, it was just really Look, and, Depending and, on the and senator, who knows how bad that punishment that, is. You yeah. know, over, you know, this is one of the places where Wallace Hall actually lost uh, the, the point was they said they didn't find any evidence of this in the business school. Um, they said the Macomb School was pretty clean and had had you know batted these down pretty consistently. And they didn't find any evidence of any quid pro quo right. sort of exchange. A, a right. conservative member of the House called me after this happened and said, "Aha, we got him." Basically, you know, the Kroll report is is exactly you know trying to spin that this was exactly what we had hoped, and it reveals how corrupt everything is, and the corruption blows back on or splashes back on leadership in the House because they came after Wallace Hall through this. Uh, transparency committee and, you know, it just proves everybody is tarred with the same brush as a consequence of this report. And my reaction to this person really was, so do you buy the argument that this is not limited to the University of Texas at Austin, that there are instances at every major university where, whether it's regents or trustees or the president, people in the administration are influencing some of these decisions? Yes. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there should be a Kroll report for Texas A&M? Do you think there should be a Kroll report for Texas Tech? Because if this is not just about UT Austin, right. shouldn't this be – and this person said absolutely. The thing yeah, about think, UT Austin, though, is that it's the hardest one to get well, into. Well, but I think – I right. think look, there's 73 yeah. is not nothing. And the idea right. that it's only 73 for a lot of people is is not an adequate answer. And yeah, the you're idea still, you're still taking calls from right. Highland Park, right? You know, yeah. and the idea and the idea that everybody does it is true but irrelevant in the sense that this is not about everybody else. This is about you all well, and taxpayer dollars. I mean, I don't like well, the idea that our flagship university they uncovered that you know the president and president's office is shredding shredding index there cards is, with notes on them. There I is mean, a ca- yeah. piece. There's a Casablanca. There's a Casablanca-like shocked, shocked reaction well, to discover it's... that there's legacy admissions and everything else. And you know, there's an interesting Wallace Hall. To his credit, when I interviewed Wallace Hall back in September, I said, "Do you think we should get rid of legacy admissions?" And he said, "Yeah." You know, that would be a radical. That would be a radical change in the way, not just at public universities, private universities, mm-hmm. higher ed, uh, yeah. private schools, private Harvard's schools. Class, I think. Right. Say so again. What you have to rebuild Harvard's freshman class if you Look, got rid of legacy. Well, this is a I mean, private school. Yeah. There, there, there are there are real issues that are not UT Austin specific that emerge from this, but UT Austin is under the microscope, and so of course that's the conversation that well, I thought legitimately the, is being in this had. era. This may be a little bombshell, but in this era, I applied and was rejected from UT Law School. This in the I believe last, it. I believe it too. But you know, I mean, to well, be, who do you know, Ramshaw? Yeah, yeah not enough people. Someone. Clearly, who, who did? Who did you who know? I didn't know. Clearly, um, but you know, I think to be a, a, a state resident and to see the scores of people who ended up getting in. I mean, even their threshold. You know, for the not the law school, but UT. You know, looking at seventy-three students who got SAT scores under eleven hundred. You know, GPAs under blah blah blah. I mean, you look at those numbers and you're like, are you kidding me? I mean, even raise that threshold and, and see how the number of 73 grows. I mean, it's it's pretty stunning. I think I read that report and was like, right. Jesus. But, but, of course, the thing that is, the again, not UT Austin specific, mm-hmm. but the thing that one I think has to consider here is that universities are constantly talking about building a class. 
Sometimes you allow in a tuba player who may not be as academically qualified as a kid who comes straight through the front door with scores and grades, or a football player, or what have you. And these kinds of concessions to we want this person for this reason, even though they may not be academically on the same level. This is a never thus thing. But the thing that's interesting is the list of things on the this reason list. Oh, right. Really, really fast halfback, really great tuba player. Completely agree. Um, really great father, child of a senator. Mother, mother's mother's a lawyer in Highland Park. Yeah. <laughs> right. And you see, know. there's where it falls off. Right. right. But again, you know, Reeve did a story for us about A&M and letters that were written on behalf of students applying to A&M, including I, a number of elected officials. And I just think this is – I don't think the, there's anything wrong with asking. And I think that the asking con, is con, a standard right. thing. Send a recommendation. Yeah. I really think you ought to let this one in. You're an idiot if you don't let this kid in, yada, yada, it'll, yada. It'll be interesting that, to see if, if this me. inquiry and this line of conversation stops at the door of the tower. Right. Well, I think it's getting to your Casablanca point. The interesting thing, one of the interesting things in the Crow Report was some of the people that, you know, the sort of like, oh, I'm shocked, I'm shocked people, the people that approved uh, the report going forward uh, seemed like they were probably knowledgeable of the way the system worked to a large extent. Maybe not entirely. They may not have known specific things about powers overruling the admissions yeah. office in yeah. certain right. instances, but they certainly sounds like they knew a lot about the system. The yeah. regents office and the system office would send 50 to 60 names every year yeah. for admissions. I mean, that was my favorite part and they, of the report. They spent right. 400 yeah. grand to find that out, which they, yeah, which they well, were probably already, already knew. So, so <laughs> this is, this, <laughs> it required that to be disclosed. It required right. an investigation to find out that most of the letters of recommendation came from legislators, regents, people wealthy the, donors, yeah. and alumni. And people, wow. and people in the government affairs office. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, it's right. like the same people who are waiting for this report to come out have been sending all these letters. Right. I mean, yeah. So I think that was... The, the royal court is the royal court. Everybody knew how this was going to come out, I think, you know, in the in the system. I just think that, the again, to me, the most egregious part is about powers and, and well, you know... You know, one other, one other thing I want to mention, at least in passing, is that, you know, they had this sort of... Uh, ingenious system of not displacing a student, of sort of getting rid of the argument that, you know, this one we let in and that one didn't get in as a result, which was if they had 100 slots, they would fill the 100 slots in the normal way. And if there were, you know, somebody with, you know, pixie dust on them, they got, they added a slot rather than knocking out one of the 100. Which so is be 102 still, in a class. It's, but, yeah, it's, it's still, yeah, it's, it's, it's indefensible, but yeah. it, you know, at least... There's sort of subverts that argument. Yeah, if there are room for 102 students, well, there are room for 102 you know, students. You can tell from the classes in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, you can right. tell from that that they know they're bending the rules, right? And that they're they're working around in some way that they can at least um, ease the pain of bending the rules without saying, "Well, we're not going to bend the rules." Right, well, let's, the rules. let's ease the pain of people listening to this. <laughs> no. Uh, if you have questions or comments, email them to tribcast at texastribune.org. We would like to thank Shiny Ribs, as always, for doing our theme song on behalf of Emily Ross. That's it. No. Yeah. Don't we, we, would also like, we would also no. like to thank Reeve for shepherding this. I know, Reeve. You've you really know, done an incredible job As, as much as you present a juicy target every week. Juicy. I've been trying to lose weight. Um, <laughs> you were awesome at this. Oh, well, thank you. You were a truly great host of this podcast for a long time. It's possible sometime we'll allow you to do the intro. If Evan, oh, there's <laughs> no way. Are you kidding me? Oh, come on, Evan. Reeve gets to do the intro. Well, since Evan's going to be doing the intros from here on out, he's going to be acquiring them. acquiring right. the intros. If you would like to I'll do hold, an intro, I'll hold on Evan's to your cell number. phone number. Is right, yeah, give it out. Five one two. I'll be happy to have your phone number uh, uh, near me at all times in case we need an intro. But no, you, you did a great job. No, oh, thank you. It's I been think, a good four plus it. years. Uh, call, call us when you get sick of sharp. March fifteenth, sixteenth. <laughs> 
That was uh, Ross, no, that was I, Ross I, by the way. Ross will be here Chandler. to dry your tears. <laughs> His cell phone. Yeah. Uh, also, on behalf of our producer, Todd, this is Reeve. Thanks for listening. This is some gangster shit.